0: This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is a director, writer and co-artistic director who was named one of the country's 21 hottest creatives of 2021 by The Australian. Constantine Costi has worked with leading Australian arts companies including Pinchcut Opera and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra and is co-artistic director of Redline Productions at Sydney's Old Fitz. He's a regular at Opera Australia and last year responsible for the triumphant production of La Traviata on Sydney Harbour. I was due to talk to him in the middle of last year about what would have been the upcoming production of Othello, but alas, the Delta variant got in the way of that. I'm delighted to say, though, that I now have a new excuse to speak with him, as he's now the Revival Director at Opera Australia for Alavis La Juive, which is at the Sydney Opera House from the 9th to the 26th of March. The Saturday paper said that on stage or screen, his work is distinguished by its bold visual impact, its radical reenvisioning of established classics and its emotional energy. I also hear he's quite good with a fish and a filleting knife. Constantine Costi, thank you for taking the time to be in conversation with me today.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here in person.
1: It is. Now, I want to start by asking about this opera. I believe it's the first time it'll be performed in Australia. Is that right?
2: Yeah, this is Le Juive, which I'm the revival director of the Opera Australia. And remarkably, for an opera that was a French smash hit blockbuster, it's the first time it's going to be on Australian soil.
1: So what's taken so long?
2: Um, It's one of these funny ones where This happens a lot in opera Where things were really in vogue And were really popular for the era that they were in Tastes change Things get lost in the wash And then it takes a few decades Or sometimes in this case, you know, over a hundred years To go, wait a minute, let's revisit this Let's look at the bones of it And there's something exciting and worth revisiting
1: Mm. So is there something that draws you to this particular opera?
2: Yes I think what's really interesting about this is So it was the epitome of French grand opera spectacle And it was... Completely over the top when it premiered. We're talking about huge sets, live donkeys, people like in crazy cost. It's not an opera. unless it's a live donkey, and um, and then I like I'd been to see that backstage. It. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. The donkey wranglers, the unsung heroes, um, literally unsung. So, what is really interesting though is that when you actually scratch underneath the surface of this thing, it's a really good story with amazing yeah. characters, and it's dramatic and passionate, and also. Curiously political, which mm. really makes it relevant, so this production takes away all of the spectacle and the bling and really presents like drastic desperate human beings and that 's kind of what opera does so well
1: because mm, it 's sort of a, an opera about religious intolerance at the heart of it, isn't it
2: yeah it's it's amazing it's about it's about a Jewish community in a world that is quite hostile to You know, people who aren't Christian. And I think that we're seeing this all around the world at the moment in terms of, uh, you know, discrimination and othering. So there's something very pressing about this.
1: Mm. So, I mean, you're directing something that's almost 200 years old. Yeah. To what extent do you, like, travel, try to travel back to that era? Or are you almost treating it as if it was written this year?
2: Yeah. I mean, this is like, I do think part of being an opera director in specifically is that you also have to be a bit of an amateur historian, right? Mm. So I go down these like very circuitous and sometimes like almost, I'd say, deliciously irrelevant rabbit holes of historical detail and... What I'm finding is that as I continue to work in this field is that you come up again, and it is a cliche, but the more things change, the more they stay the same. So fundamentally, what's amazing is that to see that the sensibilities, the, the problems, the challenges that they were facing you know, hundreds of years ago are still kind of there today. Mm. The past is just kind of us in different clothing, you know?
1: Tell me a bit more about uh, the singers that got involved and how the production comes together.
2: Yeah, well, it originally, so it was originally staged in uh, Opera Lyon in France a few years ago. And what's exciting about my job is that I'm working with a new cast and particularly a really strong leading Australian cast with Diego Torre and Natalie Royan. So what I get to do is, and this is the fun part of my job in terms of when I do revival gigs, is that I'm given a beautiful set, a beautiful costume, but then new singers with their own ideas and sensibilities and physicalities and approach. And so it's this lovely kind of dance between reviving something, but Mm. also tapping into what these singers can offer. And, you know, Diego and Natalie are like, incredible Australian stars, So, I mean, with huge voices and a huge dramatic presence. So that's going to be really fun, I think, finding, um, you know, gripping performance qualities to bring out from them. Mm.
1: So, so as a revival director, you basically are given a, effectively a framework, but you can still move quite a lot within that framework. Is that
2: right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not, it's not a photocopy, you know, no. of what happened in Leon. That's kind of impossible. And there's nothing worse than when it's a sort of square peg round hole. I'm given people who are completely unique and different. And so it's really about kind of like finding that alchemy, that chemistry to make it feel fresh and new. And, you know, like even if I've done a revival gig of a show that happened before I was born, you know, which mm. is some of my earlier gigs, reviving wow. shows that were 33 years old, um, you know, being like, okay, great set, great costumes, let's bring it to life. Mm.
1: Well, I think we have to hear a little bit of uh, this wonderful opera. Um, now, what, uh, what track have you got for us to, to listen to, so to start off with?
2: What I've got is the kind of showstopper aria in the third act, okay. Rachel Quand du Seigneur which is really the Jewish patriarch deciding whether he wants to throw his daughter under the bus in order to get revenge on the Christian establishment. And so he's grappled between his faith and his
0: family.
1: Roberto Alagna, performing Rachel Con du Seigneur from La Juive, which Opera Australia is performing from the 9th to the 26th of March. And the revival director of that production, Constantine Costi, is in conversation with me today. Now, Con, if I may observe, your first and second names are a bit of a collision or unification, perhaps, of two nationalities, although not too far away from each other. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So... um. I'm Greek Cypriot on my dad's side and Italian on my mother's side, so it's a uh, yeah it's a Mediterranean blend, and I kind of you know I bleed out olive oil basically Ah, it's yeah. the great skin <laughs> 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 yeah debatable <laughs> but uh, so tell me about you how long, how long had your family been in, in the country? Oh well, I mean my both my parents are born here, my dad. When he was young Moved back to Cyprus So he kind of grew up Half in Australia Half in Cyprus Mm. And um, you know I'm part of that Really interesting generation Where you have One foot in the migrant experience Mm. And one foot in the kind of The privilege and the affluence of the hard work that my parents and grandparents did, you know, to afford me opportunities that were harder for them to come by.
1: Mm. I mean, part of that, the the migrant experience, which doesn't happen now, but did happen back in the day, was that uh, people would actually change their names to try and uh, be more, quote-unquote, accepted. And that that happened to your grandfather as well, didn't it? Yeah,
2: I think he went through about 48 different names (laughs) for reasons that are very mysterious. But um, So, he was originally Delesforos. And then for a while was George Giorgio, which is a name that I think is very cool and sounds like some sort of like Greek Cypriot, I don't know, spy or something. (laughs) And then... um and then settled on uh, Constantine Costis, so I'm named after him. Oh, you're named after your grandfather? Yeah, that's right.
1: Well, your grandfather's new name.
2: Yeah, exactly. Especially. yeah. yeah, yeah your seventh yeah, name. Yeah, or. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the stage names of, but, a, of a Greek Cypriot immigrant.
1: But now, but Costis is, is sort of famous, uh, in, at least in Sydney. I don't know whether you, you have an empire beyond there for, for seafood. So how did that empire grow out of uh, uh, that beginning?
2: I mean, this, it's it's... It's an amazing story, and it's also amazing in sort of it's, uh, uh, you know, how known this version of the migrant experience is, which is, you know, my grandfather came over here with literally nothing, not speaking the language, worked so many jobs, was in Port Kembla Steelworks for a while, was a short-order cook, ended up in Lakemba running a fish and chip shop that my dad and his siblings lived above. Right. Um, You know, and that was they were just a local kind of chippy in a way. And then his... You know, children went on to work their asses off and to build this seafood name in in Sydney, and it's um it's extraordinary.
1: You were involved with that business effectively as a child, like it was kind of always there,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, I, it's 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 non negotiable, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I loved it, like it was, and I still do it. You know, at Christmas time, I'm I'm summoned to the shop to go and work and to wow. be back on the filleting bench, like in the apron and the gumboots, and um. I think that's really interesting for me particularly mm. to kind of like have this um this other side to my life and my upbringing you know the world of opera of course is associated with like high knowledge high art and um and then to you know to work at the fish shop as well it's nice to sort of have that balance I suppose
1: So tell me about the beginning of the journey from filleting fish uh oh. you know during school holidays whatever it is yeah. to working in opera I mean that that that's quite a journey was yeah. there much sort of that sort of culture in your childhood?
2: Uh, not particularly. I mean, my parents were really supportive. Like me and my siblings were all really creative. So we were always encouraged to be creative and to put on little shows. And we had a little puppet theater that we did productions on. I'm one of four. Right. and Big enough uh, to have a show. Yeah, well, and big enough by today's standards. Yeah, big <laughs> enough to have a show and an ensemble. And lots of cousins. So, you know, there's yeah. the chorus there as oh, well. Of course. And, um, yeah. And then uh, so just that natural kind of love and interest is really nurtured. And then I guess when the two worlds kind of crossed over the most was when I graduated from theater school and didn't have any work. My brother's a playwright and we set up our own little seafood, just pop-up. not just you, right? not just me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. So we were running a little seafood store that we do Friday, Saturday, Sunday at Birkenhead. And then that money was, uh, kind of funding out like avant-garde productions and warehouses around Sydney. So like in a way there is a real link there And, and thank God that we have those skills because it was bankrolling the operation for a while.
1: So what made you want to get into the directing side rather than say the performing side?
2: Yeah, that's a really, that's a really, really good question because I feel like good directors in my opinion have to have such a deep, love and admiration for the performers on stage. You know, you're not behind glass, like at its best, you kind of feel like you're up there with them. Mm. And so I think for me, there's a few things like I was just a naturally kind of like bossy boots kind of kid. So that lends yourself to wanting to be the director <laughs> and behind the scenes, I think. And as well, you know, it's sort of like, I think what performers do is extraordinary and so brave. And I just don't think that I ever really had that ability to completely remove myself from watching myself, you know? And I think as well, what I love about directing as well is that I can sort of be both up there with them, but then kind of pulling the strings as well, which I, you know, in terms of the set and the costumes and the lights and the whole experience of an evening, I love the idea of cultivating an experience, you know, and taking an audience on a journey there.
1: Mm. It wasn't always about theatre, though, was it?
2: No. I studied film at UTS for three years as well. But my films were so theatrical that basically I was tapped on the shoulder and gone, listen, I think maybe you need to be in theater. different medium <laughs> might be, might be in store.
1: Come on. Tell me about one of those student films.
2: Oh, I mean, it's so funny. Like you don't, you, you know, you don't even think about them really look at them, but I remember doing like just these absurd farces where people were dressed up in ludicrous costumes. And I think there's such a thread. I mean, obviously people like Baz Luhrmann do the opposite so well, but there is mm-hmm. such a thread with like gritty dark, grimy, cold Australian cinema, you know? And I think for me, you know, I want to take people to these like fantastical worlds, but unfortunately with no budget. So it was sort of like, you know, fantasy on a shoestring.
1: I gently suggest that uh, your films might have been uh, contrasted with the others that the other students were putting (laughs) out. But you'd have been working on a range of films like that. You'd have been having to, as a a student filmmaker, you were also working on their films in the same way that they're working on yours. Yeah, exactly. You weren't tempted by that other genre.
2: No, I mean, it's just not in me. You know, and uh, yeah, you can't you can't be something that you're not. You know. So, what was your
1: reaction when, when someone said, "Oh, you know, have you ever thought about working in theatre rather than film?"
2: Um, well, I mean, again, just for fun, I was doing little student productions, um, so it sort of it sort of made sense to me to, to to step into that world, and it was exciting. And you know, for me, it's always it's been about as long as I can keep working and keep making stuff. That's the mm. goal, you know.
1: Now, John Bell was an important part of your development. He's yeah. kind of the one who discovered you, if I can uh, use those terms. Is that is that the right way of putting
2: it? Um, I mean, yeah, kind of. It was really, it was really sort of like I look back on it and go, oh my god, what was I doing? You know. So I was directing a production of The Merchant of Venice with my brother. Um, at the Genesian Theatre, which is that amazing community theatre on Kent Street, which I think is one of Australia's oldest theatres. Yeah, I think it is, isn't it? And I wasn't connected to the industry in any way, so I was like, oh, I'll get John Bell to come and see this, you know, and sort of sent a email to the receptionist and didn't get a response. And I just rocked up at the office one day and said, hi, I'd love to meet John Bell, like this kid, and... And, you know, I waited in the office about two hours and he sort of said, what are you here? What are you doing? I was like, I don't really know. <laughs> get out of we here. We sp- <laughs> get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we spoke for about an hour about Shakespeare and The Merchant of Venice. And, yeah. and then I was like, I would love to assist you. And this is just sort of the bolshy kind of attitude of someone who didn't really. Sorry, know who he he'd come to. to the show already, or you were didn't desperately come. you were des- He didn't even come at all. No, nope, I just wanted to. I just wanted to meet him, and then um, you know, and then yeah, and then he said, "Well, what can I do for you?" And I said, "Well, I'd love to assist you." And he was like, "Well, look, the actual assistant on the Duchess of Malfi he was directing isn't here for two weeks. You can intern and be my assistant for two weeks, and." Um, And kind of took me on And it was amazing And I learned so much And I wasn't particularly keen On going back to school Or to university And he recommended That I go to NIDA And in the way That he is so known for um, In terms of his generosity He wrote me a three-page Handwritten reference And I was in NIDA When I was 23
1: And that's after Working for him For two weeks, basically Yeah, effectively effectively.
2: And I was directing At the same time A production of Accidental Death of an Anarchist In the community theatre And he came and saw that With the team And yeah, just like A huge nurturer and uh, a huge heart So yeah, John was uh, an incredible figure in my story
1: So what was NIDA like in terms of what did you feel? What was the most important thing you feel they taught you?
2: I was there under the tenure of a Gil Kipster who was running the course, who was incredible. And it was like full metal jacket for theatre nerds. You know, you were kind of brought into this boot camp and broken down and rebuilt. And so it was equal parts kind of shattering and testing. And I don't think I slept for a year, but, you know, to go through the fire of an intense experience like that was incredibly rewarding. And it took me a little while to sort of rebuild my identity and sense of artistic spirit after that. But that's something I'm also thankful for because, you know, you go in and you're super confident, blah, blah, blah. I can do everything. Ah, I'm fine. You know, I've done an amateur production of the merchant of Venice. I can take it all on. And, um, and yeah, and then I was, I was lucky enough to get a few internships after I graduated where I was able to sort of leave the country and sort of like rediscover my passion and also to really harness those skills and the, um you know, the immense level of knowledge that that course gave me. So it was, it was incredible. It was equal parts shattering and inspiring.
1: So you said some of those internships were overseas, yep. right? So that, was that a culture shock at all? The way things, did they work differently?
2: Big time. I was working as an intern at... The first gig I got was at the Schauspielhaus Wien in Vienna, which is an old cinema, which was Freud's favourite cinema, that's now a theatre, and Barry Kosky was the artistic director of that theatre for many years. And I was there on a production of, like, an absurd sort of 1950s melodrama, and I I remember the actors were smoking in the green room and everybody was yelling at each other and getting like completely drunk every night after rehearsal and coming in hungover and it was this like volatile um, environment where the most kind of like the priority was being original and innovative and exciting and if you weren't that then that was so boring and you can get out of the room and I just love that kind of like almost fastbinderish kind of reckless creativity was really exciting and for me to go, okay, there's an element here now where, yes, I've learned all of these like skills at NIDA, mm. but let's open the floodgates a little bit and kind of throw caution to the wind and see what happens. And so this spirit of like reckless the- uh, creativity that I was exposed to really like made me rethink things.
1: Yes, I think I would have found it terrifying. <laughs> it was! It absolutely was. In a bad way, you found it terrifying in a good way. <laughs> well,
2: yeah, yeah, terrifyingly good.
1: So were you ever tempted to sort of stay in Europe?
2: Um, Yeah, absolutely. I was tempted to stay, but you know, I have such a close connection with my family, and I'm very passionate about making work in Australia. So, you know, that's something that I wanted to come back and pursue.
1: Mm. I mean, as well as the skill set that they give you at NIDA, as you said, you know, how to do how to do that. How much of it is also about perhaps building the relationships with your peers, with other directors of your of your age and era, and uh, performers? Yeah, because uh, I assume you're you're using the perform you're the actors in the acting stream, and you're directing them for your shows. Mm-hmm. How much of that is, is building that community? for your your era
2: huge it's I mean look you meet everybody again which was what which was some advice I was given when I was there and people kind of move in packs and you develop those connections with people so I'm still working with people that I studied with because you went through the fire together and you come out with a shared language so and look Sydney it's such a small community so it's important for everyone to kind of band together whether they went to NIDA or not you know
1: yeah so getting involved with opera though I mean was that something that happened in NIDA or as a result of one of these internships,
2: yeah. So, at no, I had no, I had no knowledge of opera when I went to theater school. Like, I, was something
1: you listened to as a kid, or the family, or anything? As a
2: kid, I listened. I had like a record player, and and just sort of just looking at the covers, kind of like picked up some Debussy and some Wagner and this and that, and would sort of enter this world of classical music. Mm. And later, what I knew to be operatic music. Mm. And at the time, I was just captivated, you know, because I'm a musician as well, and was sort of captivated the music of it. But in terms of a performance. Uh, industry and genre I didn't I was just like Ladies in Viking hats You know yeah. And then When I was When I was at NIDA I remember um, We did like some Opera sessions With uh, Elke Neidhart Right Who was Directed Australia's First Ring Cycle In Adelaide in 1996 Was in Skippy the Bush Kangaroo And she was Had a formidable reputation as both being an incredible director but also you know someone who was famous to you know i think literally coming to blows with conductors i mean these stories are all kind of blown out of proportion but i'm sure she wouldn't Perfect, mind yes. <laughs> you know exactly but that's <laughs> exciting and you know half the show is off the stage really in the opera world and um and elka took us for uh some like hypothetical projects um and one of them was Tosca, where I presented a concept and she was like tiny and chain smoking and would just like literally call a spade a spade. And I remember she looked at my work that I presented and just said to me, uh, why are you wasting my time with this absolute garbage? Right. And I was, she was like, are you trying to bore me to death? And I was like, well, I guess that that's it for me with the opera. Like, And then she saw some of my work and, you know, my grad show had a live band in it and singing. And she said to me, have you ever considered working in the opera? And I was like, no, I think it's boring I think it's stuffy And she was like, it's just an incredible orchestra Singers and intense theatricality And I think there might be something for you here And then she got me an internship with Opera Australia
1: Mm. Well, before we get to Opera Australia I think we have to have another track Uh, And this is from Puccini Now we'll hear why uh, you want us to hear this track afterwards Because um, it's it's kind of uh, the first big opera production of yours uh, which you'll we'll hear about. So this is, this is Belleville, Il Suolo e il Nostro Mondo from Puccini's Il Tabarro.
0: He's such a no 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 no
1: El Vil e Suolo il Nostro Mondo, from Verdi's Il Tabarro. The choice of my guest in conversation today, director and writer, Constantine Costi. Now, Con, why did we want to hear that?
2: Um. Well, that is one of the highlights from one of my favourite operas and the first opera that I directed, really. And it was this funny story where it's like, it's got to be now, like I mean, the timeline all gets very blurry, but it's like maybe six years ago, maybe seven years ago. Um, I was living in Newtown, right? And I was just going for a run, just in sort of like the more industrial area of Enmore. And I just ran past a warehouse with the roller doors were open and there were people in there kind of like cooking. It was like a commercial kitchen. And I popped my head in and I was just looking around and there was like this big balcony. I was like, oh, wow, this is like an amazing theatre space potentially. And just said to someone... Um, You know, can I talk to the boss? And this guy came down and I was like, look, I'm a director. Um, I'd love to direct a show here. I'd love to direct an opera here. What do you reckon? And he looked at me like, (laughs) what are you talking about? And basically told me to get stuffed. And I was like, oh, well, you win, you lose and walked out. And then his wife came running out and was like, oh, I, I just overheard. I'm a photographer. I love the arts, blah, 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 blah. I'd love for you to do this. And I was like, oh, terrific. So then got a friend of mine who's a conductor and we were like, let's do Il Tabaro. You know, it's, it's. So it's, you
1: specifically wanted to do an opera in that space? I wanted
2: to do an opera mm-hmm. because, I mean, I was so inspired by the time by directors like Graham Vick, who unfortunately passed away last year. Um, but, you know, all about this idea of like opera does not necessarily belong in the concert hall, right? Opera is for everybody. There's nothing in the cosmos that dictates that opera has to be this elite thing. Anyway, so we're in this like kind of this dingy warehouse in Enmore. The set was a truck and we built the seating bank and managed to beg, borrow and stole to get, you know, um, props and people to play in the orchestra. Mm. And... It, people came. We had no publicity and people rocked up. And it was, you know, I remember as well, we couldn't find a tenor to sing the role of Luigi, right? Because I couldn't pay anyone. It's a hard thing. Yeah. The only person I could find, everyone was like, Have you spoken to Jeffrey Knight? And I was like, Who's Jeffrey Knight? So, Jeffrey was in one of New Zealand's most notorious bikey gangs, right? And he was discovered in jail as a singer and went on to have this opera career. So, the guy is you know, seven foot tall with these tats, a total sweetheart, a total professional, incredibly generous, but, you know, Il Tabarro is about working people and, uh, you know, a a drastic kind of like, you know, uh, people at the bottom of society. And I remember in rehearsal saying things like, you know, like classic sort of, you know, pretentious young director being like, I don't think I believe in good and evil. And I remember Jeffrey leaning forward going, I've seen evil, mate. (laughs) And so... (laughs) And so he was amazing. And, um, yeah, and then we just put this thing on and Lyndon Terracini from Opera Australia came and saw it unannounced and I was petrified and, like, you know, hid under the lighting desk when he arrived. And You um, you
1: recognised him, you knew who he was.
2: Yeah, I knew who he was. And, yeah, and then from that, Lyndon really kind of took me under his wing and got me more involved with the company.
1: So that kind of guerrilla production, if I can put it that way, in a makeshift venue, that's sort of typical of of your early work, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: performing opera in that way, uh, in that sort of venue, it is anathema to the reputation mm-hmm. that it has, which you sort of alluded to there. Um, as being for elites, people do kind of feel sometimes opera, oh, it's not for me, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's over there, it's in the opera house, yep. it's, you, know, you wear tiaras and, and the whole thing, <laughs> women with pawns and so on. Of on course. Head singing. How did your journey to discovering what opera was, what can you sort of share about that to convince people? I and came... Did, sorry, and yeah. did that production in Enmore... Did or newtown did did you think that was part of breaking down that barrier
2: completely I mean you know in its own very small and humble way, um I felt like with that production, we saw how if you take look, I love dressing up, I love going to the opera that's like that's not going to go away, and that's part of the fun as well. but the point is in my opinion is that the flip side is just as valid and just as possible, so what I saw was in a venue that's not a theater space with no set. The power of incredible drama and incredible music will always move people, regardless of if you grew up with the opera or not. And that's me speaking from firsthand experience. I didn't grow up with the opera. I don't have that kind of like, it wasn't ingrained in me, but I think the force of it is so overwhelmingly powerful that when it works, it doesn't matter who you are. And it doesn't often work. You know, it's like opera is like high stakes gambling, but when it does, the payoff is extraordinary and universal.
1: So, how much does a young director need to basically create their own directorial opportunities, like you did? Basically, not be asked to do a show, but actually invent the show in order to be able to put it on.
2: Um, yeah, I think like there's you know there's many ways to skin a cat, but I think it sort of comes down to I know I know a lot of really exciting directors who had a very different run to me and were working in subsidised theatres from the word go, and that's terrific. But I think the commonality is you want to make work. So whether it's like, you know, I've got friends who've done stuff in their apartments because the desire to create is just so overwhelming that you'll find a way to do it.
0: Mm.
1: So Lyndon comes and sees a, a night of uh, the show <laughs> yeah. and you're hiding under the lighting desk uh-huh. and so what you get a, a, a call the next day or an email or something or what happens.
2: Yeah, so I get I just I get called to his office and we just, (laughs) I get summoned. I mean, Lyndon is so uh, so approachable. So you never feel like you're summoned, but, um, gently invited. And, um, and then we just spoke at length about, you know, my work and his vision for the company. And, you know, we're sort of told we'll give you gigs as assistant and revival director. And that's led to my own shows, which is like super exciting. So Um, I'm really thankful that Lyndon has given me these opportunities.
1: So do you feel that almost that that show in the warehouse is sort of your tipping point between trying to get your career going and then have arrived
2: Yeah I mean look It's just a series Of lucky accidents I suppose Like I didn't invite Lyndon; He just came and Saw it So I think things May have gone very Differently The goal was always To put stuff on And these are just Like really lucky Bonuses And yeah it was A tipping point Because I was able To in a very basic Way just sort of Showcase what I'm, inter- what I'm Interested in
0: mm.
1: Well I think we Have to have another Track of music uh, And we're going to Go into a rather Different style now With Barbara Strozzi Can you tell us About what we're About to hear now
2: Yeah, so this is uh, Priego ad Amore, um, which is the Prayer to Love, from Barbara Strozzi's 1644 First Book of Madrigals, and it's an ode to the pains and pleasures of love.
1: Diego Ademore by Barbara Strozzi a very different era and style of music to what we've been hearing so far con why did uh,
2: you want us to hear this particular piece well this is like one of the like most i'd say satisfying and exciting and terrifying projects that i've worked on mm-hmm. Uh, ter- that
1: word terrifying again It keeps popping up, <laughs> doesn't it? It's so interesting And yet you still come back for more Oh, yeah, yeah You've got to
2: be a kind of glutton for punishment in a way No, but I think um, if, you're not, if you're not a little bit scared Or not on the edge of your seat It's kind yeah. of not worth doing no. um, You know, it's always a litmus test for me at least And finding the things that I do find challenging Kind of keeps you on your toes You know, complacency is the enemy of any good art or anything really um, During the first COVID lockdown I got a phone call from Pinchgut Opera who said to me, we want to put something on when this is all over. Um, would you be interested in making a film? Because my film background was known to them. And, um, you know, you had to slap me to shut me up in terms of my enthusiasm and what I, <laughs> what I thought could happen with opera and film. And we found, so Aaron said, let's do the first book of Madrigals, which are short little pieces by an incredible composer called Barbara Strozzi, who was... Writing in Venice in the 17th century was just as good, just as talented as her male counterparts, but has sort of been lost in history. And um, and we found a Subaru factory, which is about to become a, I think, it, like a sort of a wet and wild in Balmain. So we found this like half space that was just a gutted out warehouse. Another and we, gutted out
1: warehouse. I know, I
2: know. <laughs> I mean, look, there's, there's something there. It's the oasis of creativity. And... Um, and we turned it into a makeshift film studio for two weeks and shot this hour-long film and Pinchgut, to their credit, put everything behind it. And um, so we made a film called A Delicate Fire, which is sort of a dreamlike telling of, I think, about 10 Barbara Strozzi madrigals.
1: And how, how do we get to see this?
2: Yeah. So um, we're talking at the moment about distribution. So I think there's going to be a few exciting announcements coming up. Oh,
1: exciting. So where does the inspiration for you come from? Are there other specific directors or artists, or past or present, whose work you particularly look to?
2: Absolutely. I mean, and that extends beyond directors as well. But in terms of the directors that I, I really admire and like, and I've been lucky enough to work with a few of them, even though they're operating in different styles, I feel like when you look at people like... Barry Kosky like every director in Australia particularly in opera we're all you know we all owe it to Barry who really paved the way but even people like Barry Sir David McVicar Robert Carson there's something really exciting about directors in my opinion who base what they're doing in a deep understanding and knowledge and research of the material and when you kind of like scratch under the surface and throw all of the sort of operatic Clichés and tropes away And try to get into the marrow of Either you know, What the music is doing Or what the text is doing Or both You will discover something new and exciting And I think that's why people like Barry Work You know it's so flamboyant and over the top and terrific, but it's grounded in something that is deeply responding to the material. So I find that like my creativity and me like lying down on a bed of like silk pillows and waiting for inspiration to strike is just a complete myth. It's really just about doing the work, and you'll find something there that's inspiring, and these little hooks kind of emerge that you can latch onto.
1: Well, I expect the sales of silk pillows to plunge now after you take- said. <laughs> But the, the last year you directed, of course, the Hander Opera on Sydney Harbour, uh, yeah. La Traviata. Yeah. Uh, fantastic thing, complete with fireworks uh, during the intermission, which is, I think is uh, de rigueur for, for those productions. Yeah. But there must have been different challenges having to do a, a production like that versus whether it's warehouses or the opera house
2: yeah it's the mechanics of spectacle right so and this is something that i've been really lucky about in terms of my work as a revival director and an assistant being given opportunities to be like okay this is how you work with a chorus this is how you work with a big cast you know the way you place people the way that you kind of draw attention and when you think about like the opera on the harbor i had a hundred people on that stage and it was really about how do I get everybody telling the same story and how do I kind of direct the audience's eye? So it was kind of this, um, this sort of game of tennis really, where I'm thinking about how do I get everyone looking right, looking left, going wide, zooming in. And that was kind of the technical challenge. And then really about, uh, you know, working with the singers to find explosivity in the truthfulness of their emotions and trusting that even on that massive outdoor arena, if the work the this thing is doing is meaningful and genuine, the smallest gesture will also reach the back of the stalls because that's the power of what we do, you know? So, um, I really wanted to find something that was, uh, not disingenuous for that stage you know so yes the spectacle's fun the fireworks are fun yeah. you know the champagne is fun <laughs> uh you know it's a great it's 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 a great night and, but that's the icing on i think what needs to be a very rich and uh you know sincere cake mm.
1: you say 100 people on stage yep. that's a lot of cats to corral if <laughs> yeah heard, if i can put it that yeah, way yeah surely it's it's hard to communicate to so just be heard
2: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is the funny. Absolutely. So this is why I think like it's really important to to really like um, give a huge amount of credit to both the two assistants I had on that project, Warwick Dodgwell and Tabitha Mcfadden, the choreographer Shannon Byrne. I mean, the entire creative team. You know, so it was really about us forming this like this little army, you know, of ourselves, mm-hmm. and then saying to everybody on that stage, I don't care if you're waiter number seven or Violetta. This is the world. This is the story. And then trusting that if you lay that foundation, then you can deploy everything and sort of like see the machine start to take a life on its own. So I think that's sort of part of the director's job with something like this. Like, I can't be driving the whole time, but I can work with everybody to build the car together. So we all know how it works. And then just sort of hope as the thing takes off that it's going to come home.
0: Mm.
1: In the Vienna intern experience at (laughs) uh, the uh, Freud Theatre... Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that's right. It was all pretty full-on in terms of the way the actors and performers were kind of, you know, giving each other hell. Yeah. Opera has a reputation for the prima donna, Uh the hissy fits, the throwing things around. Yeah. Yeah. Is it justified?
2: Uh, It's a huge part of my practice. I love throwing coffees against the wall, (laughs) and I'm known for smashing chairs. Uh, Yeah, look, I think... um, you, I love working with quote-unquote difficult people because that's often code for I care so much about it. It's often code for I'm actually feeling quite vulnerable. I'm mm. feeling quite scared.
1: Yes, it often is that, isn't it? And
2: that's often part of an artist, a particularly performing artist disposition, right? And that is something that can be very powerful if it's harnessed correctly. So, And, you know, you read... Um, you know uh, things that Callis was writing, right? The 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 quintessential prima donna, and she's saying things like, "I'm so frustrated because the tenor I'm working with doesn't know the material and isn't working with me as a performer." So, really, I think like a lot of that kind of behaviour, when I've encountered it, is very easily extinguished if it's not about us; it's about the story that we're telling, hmm. and then that's a very that's a that's a safer vessel to put yourself in. Um, so yeah, like those people exist and blah, blah, blah. And yes, I've come across them, but I think that kind of that energy is often just a smokescreen for a lot of things. And if you can actually just go behind it, you'll find something really fascinating. There's a reason why people are here and mm-hmm. it's not to be a on it. It's
1: fascinating that you are able to not so much see it as a strength, but corral the, the energy that they are expending there and, and focus it where it needs to be focused. That's quite a talent.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Cheers. I mean, but you know, and the flip side actually is also a problem. When I work with a singer who's like, ah. "Yes, yes, yes, everything's fine, everything's great," it's like, "Well, hold on a minute. Let's um, don't be so easygoing. <laughs> let's let's <laughs> push let's, back exactly. Let's let's see what let's let's see what's happening here." Mm.
1: Now, amongst all the rest of what you do, you're also a co-artistic director of the Old Fitz Theatre. Now, that certainly provides a contrast to some of uh, the other work. How did you get involved with that?
2: Yeah. So, I mean. I'm one of the co-artistic directors with Alex Bellage and Kat Van Davies, and I was just approached out of the blue to, to um, you know, to join them in uh, in running the theatre, and it's been amazing. And I love that theatre in Woolloomooloo. and I think there's so much dynamic stuff that's happening. So to be a part of putting it together has been bloody amazing.
1: So, what are you wanting to achieve with the company?
2: A few things. I, I you know, me, Kat, and Alex are really lucky in that we um, definitely share the same ideas and mission statements and it's really about kind of um fostering a space where artists can be extraordinarily daring and offering a space where they can also risk failure in pursuit of an incredible endeavor. And to even though it's a sixty eight theatre, we always want to hear What's the big idea? What's the, what's the ex- most exciting, most extreme version? And nine times out of 10, if we're given an unmoderated kind of um, concept, we can make it work in that tiny theatre. So that's what we really want to do, kind of explode our creativity and take on... I mean, there's such an incredible amount of extraordinary artists in this city and in this country. You know, obviously, we work with people who are interstate as well. And to find a space where let's do the work that the major companies won't touch is very exciting.
1: So you talk about risking failure and so on. I just want to sort of explore that in terms of from a from an artistic point of view, from putting on a show, yep. what is failure? Is it just no one comes to see it or is it that uh, it's boring or, you know, it gets forgotten? I mean,
2: yeah, I think, um, I think it's, re- I think, no, it's not about whether people come and see it or not. And we all know that some of the greatest art of all time has been, you know, art not seen by people and i think you kind of hit the nail on the head there when you're like it's not boring and i think that's something that is really really important we're not in the business of making things safe and day-to-day and mundane and i think if you're going to if you're going to push into somewhere that's extraordinary there's always going to be a level of risk that it won't be what you set out to achieve. And that's kind of what the definition of, I, I suppose, failure is in a way. Um, but it's worth going on that adventure because you may find something new or maybe it just doesn't work. And that's cool too, you know? Yeah.
1: So failure is always about it just didn't work out the way we thought it was going yeah, to. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And that's going to happen sometimes, time. 100%. Mm. Does Sydney have enough of this style of theatre?
2: Nope. Absolutely not. And I think that just comes down to, um, you know, the lack of spaces. Artists need space. They need an environment to create things. Hmm. And often that's, uh, you know, sparse or unaffordable.
1: Do we have difficulty getting people to come to that size of theatre? Uh,
2: no way. Like, I think, um, you know, the old fits have seen something like 500,000 people go through those doors right. since, it's, since it's opened. There's, there's a hunger there. and hmm. I think, like, you know, I'm a bit of a Luddite in my own way. And, you know, you can have, like, the world's best Instagram and, you know, YouTube videos and, you know, whatever else lies in the future. But word of mouth is the most... Is king. Is king, absolutely.
1: But that's, I suppose, what social media is. Social media is, is, is us theoretically, telling all our friends, I went and saw this last night, it was great. Yeah, yeah. But if then, only we used it for that. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> completely. <laughs> well, another piece of music now, uh, and this is, uh, well, I said Barbara Strozzi was a, was a different era and style. This is definitely a different era and style. It's Kurt Vile, The Seven Deadly Sins. What is this?
2: In April, I'm going to be opening a double bill of the great German composer Kurt Weill's Seven Deadly Sins and the Songspiel at the Old Fitz Theatre. So I wasn't intending on directing anything myself at the Old Fitz, oh. but um, I spoke to the Kurt Weill Foundation, who were very excited about um, supporting this production, along with the Goethe Institute and Phoenix Central Park. We're doing a run there as well. And basically, we're going to have an orchestra of 15 players and a cast of six in that tiny theater. I think it's going to be the first opera where you're going to be given earplugs upon arrival. Yeah. And I think that it's going to be a very big sound. And it's, um, yeah, a, sort of a, a very choreographed, interesting approach on, I suppose, it's red light district opera.
3: Meine Schwester und ich stammen aus Louisiana. Aus den Liedern erfahren können. Dort wollen wir zurückkehren. Lieber heute als morgen. Lieber heute als morgen. Wir sind aufgebrochen vor vier Wochen. Nach den großen Städten unser Glück zu versuchen. In sie Aber lieber schon in Sex. Denn auf uns warten unsere Eltern und zwei Brüder in Louisiana. Ihnen schicken wir das Geld, das wir verdienen. Und von dem Geld soll gebaut werden ein kleines Haus, ein kleines Haus. Mississippi In Louisiana Nicht wahr, Anna? Ja, yeah, Anna
1: Kurt Vile, The Seven Deadly Sins Another selection from my guest in conversation today The director, Con Consti He's directing La Juive Which is on at the Opera House From the 9th to the 26th of March Get along to opera.org.au for more information and for tickets. But, uh, Con, Kurt Vial, it is a wonderful sound. Many have tried to emulate it. But uh, what what draws you to Kurt Vile?
2: Well, I mean, the music is at the heart of it. I mean, it is so intoxicating. It's so weird and beautiful in its own way. And as soon as those, you know, those first notes emerge from yeah. the prologue, The Seven Deadly Sins, you're leaning forward in your seat. So I think Kurt Weill, whether he was doing stuff in the Weimar period, um, you know, in Berlin, in Germany, or even his later Broadway stuff, there is something very mysterious about Kurt Weill in the way that he's able to sort of, you know, Wagner grabs you by the lapels and doesn't let go. Kurt Weil draws you in with cigarette smoke, you know, and you kind of just want to sort of lean forward and step into this world. So it's so atmospheric. Yes, um, yes that's what I love so about like, Kurt Vile.
1: Any Marlena Dietrich impressions that we can see at this? Uh, uh, look, maybe on closing night as, a, as, a, as an
2: after show. I'm not making any promises, but um, we'll see.
1: Now, we have to um, wrap the whole thing around again and come back to your Greek Cypriot heritage because you've got uh, another piece of music which we'll, we'll be going out with shortly um, from Manos Hajitakis. Yep. If that's the right pronunciation. That's right. <laughs> You're the one who spoke to be me <laughs> No, oh, all no. good. You've got it. So. It's obviously like the, the the even though you're what your third generation if that's the right expression. Yep. Um. You still feel very much a connection with that sort of heritage. Can you sort of uh, yeah. explain that?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm I'm really lucky in that on both sides of the family there's a very rich idea of. Uh, our culture and where we came from, and you know all of the beautiful things that are associated with that. Whether it's like strong family values, or even keeping up a tradition of, um, you know, everyone getting together for a big baking day on Greek Orthodox Easter. You know, and what I love about that, there's obviously a kind of like, there's a, there's a charm and a surface thing to like ethnic, you know, uh, like fun things to do. Mm. But it's also I find a really humbling reminder of that I am the product of generations of people, and it's a really good way of me, like, getting back in touch with my history and where I came from, and a constant reminder of that, that I don't exist in a vacuum. I'm the result of a lot of work and sacrifice and love, and so I think it's, um, it's nice to acknowledge that.
1: Was there a negative aspect of it that you experienced as a child, perhaps at school?
2: Look, I'm lucky. Like, I think we sort of, I came along as, as a generation that it was kind of cool and interesting. I think for my parents it was very different. But um you know I mean what's cool than being trilingual and you know being able to make pasta from scratch oh, like
1: God I'm very jealous <laughs> <laughs> So why why Manos Hadjidakis
2: Well I I like I'd like to include this because you know he's obviously known for writing Never on a Sunday but um he was one of the great Greek composers of contemporary classical music and I don't believe in high art low art opera is this, that is this, you know. I think that, like, all of these labels need to be thrown out the window and I think that, like, the canon needs to be expanded and explored much more and it's also just a beautiful song.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Conkosti, it's been an absolute delight talking to you this afternoon and I have to say I could talk for the rest of the afternoon but we are out of time. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me
1: director and writer Constantine Costi he's the director of Opera Australia's La Juive which is on from the 9th to the 26th of March at the Sydney Opera House visit opera.org.au for more information that's all for In Conversation for today if you can't regularly catch the program at 1pm on Wednesdays you can find each edition on our website 2 mbs 5 slash In Conversation or by searching In Conversation in your preferred podcast app Never forgetting, of course, to leave a rating and review. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thanks so much for your company. We'll go out with that final selection from Concosti Gone is the Train by Manos Hajidakis. Bye.
2: Sound one, two, three, four, and five. And what did you have for breakfast? Uh, I had half a croissant, just half. What happened to the other half? The other half was eaten by so I'm in pre production for Orantea with Pinch Gut, so with the creative team, right? Okay, so um, so the other bud- half went to budgets, one of the designers. Budget's tight,
0: the croissant budget is you know is tight at the moment, <laughs> yep.